Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. I am really excited because this week, Sweaty Betty are supporting the podcast and in doing so are helping to ensure that I get to keep putting out this weekly show. When I first started Another Kind, I wrote a list of all the brands that it would be a dream for me to work with, and Sweaty Betty was one of those brands. So it does feel a little bit like a dream come true that they are working with me on the podcast. Because not only do I absolutely love the product, I've worn their leggings for years, and let me tell you, they last incredibly well. I also love what the brand stands for and how female empowerment really is at the core of the brand. You can absolutely tell that they've got an all-female design team. And if you follow me on Instagram, you will know that I've just started very slowly exercising again now that Rose is three months and I've been wearing my Sweaty Betty Zero Gravity Leggings. They are super comfortable and really flattering, which is giving me confidence as I'm slowly getting out there into the world of exercise again. I mean, let's be honest I'm also wearing the leggings a lot when I'm not exercising let's be real and they also look great as I'm on the nursery run or just running around with the girls so I would love you to try Sweaty Betty and you can get 20% off full price product with code MOTHERKIND so that's MOTHERKIND at the checkout for 20% off now on to this week's episode Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky. I wonder how you are all doing. I hope you're all well and keeping safe and that your friends and family are well too. I know for me at the moment I'm really grappling with this new normal and just noticing with kindness what's coming up for me. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that I often talk about being a recovering perfectionist. And I've noticed that this situation has really brought up a lot of that old stuff for me about needing things to be really perfect on the outside because I feel so out of control. I've noticed that a lot of my behavior is wanting to control things that I can't. So if that's coming up for you too, then you are definitely not alone. I've also noticed that one of the ways my perfectionism really shows for me is that nothing I do is good enough. And I've noticed that, so I'm doing a little bit of work and then I'm telling myself I need to do more, I haven't done enough. Or I'm doing a little bit of cleaning and I need to do more, I haven't done enough. Or if I'm doing a little bit of playing with Jessie, I have this critic on me telling me that I need to do more and I haven't done enough. So I've really just noticed that with kindness and then putting in a lot of the tools and practices that I teach and using them on myself just to keep reminding myself that this is totally unprecedented situation and whatever I do, it's enough. If you're feeling that too, then I would suggest if you haven't already, have a look at my perfectionism course. It's a self-study course. It's for 20 days. And it really looks at all of the things surrounding perfectionism and how to transform that. If you look on the website motherkind.co, there's lots of information on there. I'm actually working through the course myself right now because, you know, I teach what I most need to learn. And it's really helping me just remember some core principles of how to be kind to myself. So please do check that out if any of that that I've shared has resonated on to this week's episode. It is a fantastic one. It is with Anita Clear, who is a parenting expert. She has been supporting working parents in particular for 17 years. She helps working parents get that balance right between showing up at work and showing up at home. And my word, if you are still working through this time, whether that's you're working from home or you might be out as a key worker, hasn't that changed with how the childcare landscape has changed? So I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you. I hope it's going to be really supportive. 
Anita has a book coming out in a few weeks called The Work Parent Switch, which I've read and it's fantastic. So in this episode, we talk about what children really need right now. And you'll be relieved to hear it isn't more time. Anita talks about what we need to do is not do more and more parenting, but actually we need to do something different, which connects with our children more and takes less time. So I think that's such an important takeaway from this episode. You will hear what it is in the episode. I'm not going to reveal it in the intro. We also talk about how to stay sane if you are working from home and how to manage those conflicting priorities and boundaries. We talk about how to transition from being at work to then coming into parenting. We talk about screen time and play time. And we also talk about children's feelings. And I'm sure you have noticed, because most of my clients have, that our children are having some really big feelings right now. They might be tantruping more or even regressing some behavior. So we talk about that as well. As ever, if you found this episode helpful, please do share it. Just copy the link from your iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, pop it in WhatsApp or an email and share it with someone who you think might benefit from this conversation. I say it often, but I do think the guests and the wisdom that we have on the podcast deserve to be heard far and wide. So here it is. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Anita, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zoe. I'm so happy that you are chatting to us on, where are we? I'm always saying the date at the moment because I feel like things are changing so quickly here in the UK. So it's Monday the 30th of March. And we were just saying before we started recording, for me this morning, I'm feeling like we've done a week of isolation. And I did wake up with that feeling of, oh my gosh, another week ahead of me of trying to juggle work And I have a four-month-old and a four-year-old. And my husband's business is also very busy right now. So, yeah, I woke up with that feeling. And then I remembered I was talking to you. So I'm sure you were going to share so much wisdom and advice and support with us all about how we can manage this totally unique and unprecedented situation. Yeah, and I think I'm feeling the same, Zoe, to be honest. You know, we can do things for a week because there's a big novelty factor and we sort of throw ourselves into it, heart and soul and lots of energy. And then when the reality kicks in that we've got to keep doing this again and again and again, it can be quite downheartening. So I think this week's all about trying to lift our spirits up a little. Yeah, I agree. So you specialise in supporting working parents and you've got a book coming out, which I've read and is fantastic, called The Work Parent shift which we'll talk about throughout the interview but I'm really curious how did you come to specialize in firstly parenting but then this sort of second specialism which is around supporting working parents? Well I started working with parents about 15 years ago. I was working in a local authority in a children's services department. And at that time, there was a huge investment in parenting courses and supporting parents. And a lot of work was being done on the methodology and the evidence behind that. And I was really fortunate to be working in a local authority at that time. And rolled out things like the Sure Start Children's Centre programme, the Children's Fund, those kind of programmes. And then as time went on and money became less available, the agenda shifted, the money started to come out of those programmes. And I started to think about, well, it's a wonderful ambition to try and reach every single parent through a universal service like Sure Start. But one of the big problems is actually parents go to work. So if we're asking them to pitch up at a centre between nine and five, well, a lot of them aren't going to be able to do that. So I had a bit of a think and I thought, well, why not try and go to where parents are rather than expecting parents to come to us with these services? And also, why not try and get companies to pay for it? Because, you know, the government, the state will never be able to provide, you know, a Rolls Royce service to everybody. But if we could maybe get companies to understand that it's in their interest, if their working parents are managing their home lives well, if they are well, they're not stressed, they feel competent, they're more able to work well. So literally, with no idea what I was doing, I kind of launched myself into the corporate world made lots of silly mistakes trying to find who I should talk to 
but eventually built up a service going into the workplace providing early intervention parenting support in the place where parents actually are. So it was a strange journey to get there. But in the end, I ended up reaching more parents by working in the workplace than I ever did before then. And it's so true, isn't it? Because I think you'll have the stats at your fingertips, but more parents than ever are in dual working families, aren't they, with working full time. And I think it is such a unique set of challenges compared to parents who don't work outside the home. Now, working inside the home, if you're a full-time parent, is just as challenging, I think more challenging, but it is a different set of challenges, isn't it? It is slightly. And parents are working more, as you say, but we're also commuting further and we're trying to fit in more parenting. I think we come from a generation of parents who really care about getting it right. We want to be good parents. We put a lot of energy into it, but we're also working more. And the reality is that trying to manage children's emotions and behavior when you're already stressed and tired from a day at work, it does have unique challenges. It is hard. And I think we need to be realistic with working parents about how to fit in being a good parent into our working days rather than just expecting us to do more and more and more. Because most working parents feel like we're failing one way or another and we're running just to stand still and I don't think that's sustainable. Yeah and I love that phrase running to stand still is so true. Well let's talk about this new working day that we find ourselves in then where if we are still working we are being advised to work from home and we've got this perfect storm as I'm calling it where we're not only being asked to work from home we're being asked to work from home with no childcare schools are shut nurseries are shut if you're lucky enough to have a nanny they're advised not to come to your home so what advice and tips have you got for people who find themselves thrown into this totally new situation of trying to get things done I've got a four-year-old, you know, nagging on my sleeve most of the day. How can we stay sane and productive, but also meet their needs through this time? Well, I think the first piece of advice is don't try to be superhuman. You know, we're already, as I said, you know, having to rise to the challenge of balancing parenting and working. You can't add another full-time job on top of that, being a teacher, being a nursery worker, you know, a child carer. We can't do it. We have to start with reasonable expectations, being realistic. The fact is our lives are going to be different on a day-to-day level than they were a few weeks ago. Young children, very young children especially, require adult attention and adult supervision. We can't expect them just to sit there quietly while we get on with, you know, six hours of work and with a few breaks in between. We are going to be disturbed in our work. We are going to have to work flexibly. Our work day is going to be different. And we can't expect children to do something that they're developmentally not capable of doing. So we've got to start from that place of realism and pragmatism of what do my children need? What can I expect of them? What can I expect of myself? And then build up a pattern or a working day that takes those things into account rather than thinking, that's it, you know, I'm going to keep working in the same way that I have previously. So that flexibility and realism has got to be the starting point. And what if you're lucky enough to have a partner with you at home? I mean, lucky in some ways, unlucky in others, I think. It's an awful amount of pressure (laughs) on a relationship, isn't it? How do you recommend people handle those shifts and communication around the shifts of working and childcare? As you say, if you're lucky enough to have a partner who's also working at home, which, you know, a lot of people won't have that. They'll be parenting solo or they'll have partners who are out at work. But if you are both in the house, then dividing up the day, you know, either having different parts of the day where one of you works or working alternate days, really rethinking also the seven day working patterns. So if children aren't going to school or aren't going to nursery, you've got a lot more flexibility to work across those seven days and juggle that between you, taking it in turns, but negotiate your crunch issues. So rather than saying, you know, we'll do an exact pattern, you will have crunch issues about your work that absolutely have to be met. 
making sure that in those negotiations, it's not always one person's work that wins out. You know, saying these are the things I really have to deliver. What are your flexibilities? What are your must-dos? And a lot of communication. My partner and I are both working from home at the moment. And I usually work from home on my own. I have my own home office. And now I've had that invaded by a, quite a disruptive partner. So we've now got a whiteboard in which we write up what are the video calls that we're doing on a particular day? When do we need quiet? When do we need Wi-Fi? And we've done that because it was a car crash for the first couple of days of us arguing when we were constantly interrupting each other. So a lot of communication and negotiation. Yeah, I read on Instagram this morning, use your commute time to communicate. And I thought that was super smart because most of us have like half an hour where we would be getting to work. So I've started doing the same. I've started using that time where we would be not traveling to work to communicate with Guy, my husband, right? What have you got to do today? Who's going to have the girls? How's this going to work? And we're doing that daily because I think those weekly plans just don't work because our days are looking so different. Something else that I love that you talk about is how to communicate to children using this red, amber and green system. Can you talk about that? You know, I've worked at home for quite a long time now and I'm used to having children around. I developed a system on my office door. I like to keep my door closed because it keeps the noise level down. But that doesn't mean, you know, I can't be interrupted. So I have a traffic light system on my door. So green means, yeah, please come in, feel free, you know, not a problem. If you need something, come and talk to me. Whereas red means if the house is on fire, you can come in and talk to me. But otherwise, please, I am broadcasting to the nation or I am desperately trying to concentrate or I'm in a coaching call, delivering a webinar. I really don't want to be interrupted. So trying to signal really clearly. When we signal clearly to children, we set them up to succeed. They will fail if we don't tell them where the lines are or what the situation is. So if we can say to them, this is the right thing to do in these circumstances, then they've got a chance of getting it right. So my parenting principles are all about setting children up to succeed by communicating clearly, setting some clear rules, clear expectations about what they should be doing, and then reinforcing those with lots of positive reinforcement, with praise or other means of saying, thank you, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing but setting them up to succeed and you talked about making sure that we're not expecting more of our children than they can do at their age group what age would a child be able to understand a traffic light system like that do you think well, actually, you know, I think we frequently underestimate what children can understand. Now, you're not going to leave a small child unsupervised, you know, under an age that they can do that. So, you know, a three-year-old, you're always going to have an eye on what they're doing. You're not necessarily going to be closing a door and having no adult watching them. But once they get to that sort of school age and they're used to sort of managing themselves a little – we can divide the day up into little chunks. So thinking about 30-minute chunks in which they are looking after themselves, doing something, engaged in an activity, but being realistic about how long that will go on for. So really responding to what children are able to do at any one time. A good benchmark is to think about what do they do at school? What do they do at nursery? What are they capable of? And how do they behave in those places? That will give you a good idea about what they're capable of doing at home. Yeah. You talk brilliantly, and I love this idea in your book about the second shift, because it's so true, isn't it? You get home from work, and you're basically into your second job, which is looking after your children. And I'm really curious, because with working from home and self-isolation that we're in now, that second shift, you know, I know I'm having five second shifts, you know, <laughs> where I'm transitioning from work. I'll finish this podcast, yeah. and then I'll be into parenting and guy will shift with me so what suggestions do you have from shifting out of professional mode or work mode into parenting mode quite quickly and multiple times a day well, that's it. Because when we're in work mode, we tend to be very goal focused and task focused. So work is all about controlling controllables, delivering deliverables, getting work done on time, on budget. We're very driven and focused on a goal. That way of thinking 
doesn't really work with children because children are chaotic. The part of their brain that we use for doing that kind of thinking, children really haven't developed it yet. So they don't think like that. So when we're with children, we need to be much more in the moment, not five steps ahead, but, you know, tuning in, listening, being playful, being curious, being empathetic. That's what children need from us. And normally, as you say, we'd have a chunk of work and then we'd be able to transition, maybe during the commute. And I give advice to parents around how to park your work thoughts and shift your thoughts during that commute time so that you walk in the house or you meet your children really ready to be a parent. But we're going to have to fluctuate in and out and in and out if we're working at home with them. One really useful strategy is a visualization strategy. So Wherever you're working at home, whether you've got an office or it's just a bedroom or even the corner of a room, imagine there's a force field, a sort of invisible curtain between you and the rest of the house. And when you get up from your desk and, you know, you walk towards or through that curtain, just stop for a moment and breathe a few deep breaths and imagine yourself changing clothes. So often when we come home from work, we do change clothes. I've got a set of mum clothes, which are very different from my professional work clothes. So imagine yourself changing. You might imagine yourself turning into a superhero, you know, Batman, whatever it is, but you become a different person in those few seconds before you move on. So a little pause, think, okay, I'm going into mum mode, into parent mode, and then move on so that you're really cueing your brain and your body to shift into that much more in the moment responsive parent. Because if we don't do that, there's a real danger that our mindset will just collide with children. And that's going to be stressful because we're going to be looking at goals and tasks and a sense of achievement. And that's not where our children are. They're playing, being in the moment, being children. So we need to find a way to shift quickly from one to the other at the moment. And you talk about quick ways to connect. What are some of those really quick ways that we get to connect? And you mentioned that lovely phrase, tune in. How can we do that really quickly? Because it may be that, you know, I know with my girls, I might just have an hour with them before I'm on work shift again. Absolutely. One of the best things we can do is just play. So the fantastic thing about play and playfulness is almost the polar opposite of work because play is for enjoyment. You have to be in the moment, particularly if you're playing something very fun, you lose yourself in that moment, you get that sense of flow whereby you're not really thinking ahead, you're just enjoying that particular time, something fast and furious, something silly, something where you become a bit more childish and are just in that moment. It might be 15 minutes. And I really recommend to all working parents that somewhere in your day, you find 15 minutes just to play completely wholeheartedly and fully. I'm not talking about doing a jigsaw puzzle that you hate or, you know, resentfully doing a little bit of Lego when you don't really feel like it. Really lose yourself in the moment and find some games, some activities that help you do that, that you enjoy and that your child enjoys. And that will put you into that moment where you can connect. Because when we play, one of the wonderful things we do is we tune into other people's signals. If you watch children playing together, they do this with each other. They're very responsive, very tuned to what other children are doing or suggesting, how they're building on each other's ideas. And we listen well and we respond well when we're in that playful mode. So, I really recommend that the antidote to that work mindset, a really quick shortcut is just a big dose of playfulness. I love that. And I think this idea of being able to get really present, this idea of switching mindset, I think it's so simple, but in many ways, so powerful. And I think could be a real game changer, particularly at the moment. The other thing that I love about your work is that you talk about great parenting isn't about putting in more and more and more hours. And when I read that, it was really music to my ears because I think the guilt that working parents feel is pretty universal. I mean, actually, guilt is universal whether a parent's working or not. And there's a great Harvard study about that. But I love how you say, actually, it's about using the time that you do have with your children to really connect. Can you talk to that? 
please? Well, I talk about having quality moments. It's not about quality time. You know, we've been sold a little bit of a myth that if we go to a theme park or a petting zoo or something, this counts as quality time. And therefore, because working parents don't have time, that fuels our guilt, that sense of, oh, you know, I don't have enough time for my children. And what I try and tell parents to do is focus on moments, quality moments. And they can be just a few minutes when your child turns to you and they're like, oh, mummy, look at this. Or, oh, mummy, why is that happening? Or they want to show you a picture or ask you a question. In those moments, stop what you're doing and just respond to them. Have a look at what they're showing you. Answer their question. Engage for a few minutes so that you're signaling to them your availability. And then I know we've got millions of things to do. After you've done that, quite often children will be happy to go off and do something else. You can send them on a little task and you can get back to what you were doing. But really focus on how do I listen in those moments? Very often when we're in work mode especially, Parents are in problem-solving mode. So our children come to us and the first thing we want to do is we treat them like a problem that needs to be solved. So they ask us a question and the first thing we do is we just answer the question. Well, that's not really a quality interaction. A quality interaction would involve understanding, well, what do I that question's coming from? What are they doing at the moment? What's provoked that? What does that question really mean? So really thinking about listening to children, understanding where they're coming from rather than solving their problems for them. Because our big job as parents is actually just to equip children to understand the questions and answer them for themselves. So not taking our focus on problem solving into those moments and really just trying, as you said, to be present with them and understand what does that question mean and where is it coming from? And that doesn't take more time, but it does take a slightly different mindset. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge, isn't it? And what's coming through loud and clear for me through this conversation so far is that it's all about how we are as the parent and our mindset, that the children are really just there in the moment, aren't they? Just being children. They absolutely are. That's what children do. They are in their moment. They are playful. They are sort of self-directed. And there's not much we can do about that. I do think we have to be careful about thinking, you know, we need to change our children to be like this or to be like that. Children are the way they are in stepping inside their shoes and seeing the world from their point of view and from their developmental level really helps parents to understand and manage our own reactions to that. Because when we interpret children children's behavior from our own perspective. Things like, oh, well, she's doing that deliberately to slow me down or to be annoying. And and we interpret their intentions from an adult point of view. Then often we get into a negative dynamic. But whereas when we think she's doing that because at this moment she's a child and that's what occurred to her, it's a very different response that that evokes in us. Yeah. And there's an interesting dichotomy that I'd love to get your view on because on one hand, I think I don't know if you see this. I see that often we have way too higher expectations of our children, particularly emotionally. People will talk about attention seeking, and I know you talk about that brilliantly, so maybe we'll pick up on that. But then on the other hand, I think I know that I have such a tendency to do too much for Jesse, who's my four-year-old. Can you talk to that, this idea of maybe expecting too much of them emotionally, but then also doing more than we need to for them, and why that's important in parenting to get those two sides right? I do think sometimes parents are a bit frightened of children's emotions. So on the one hand, their big emotions, we find them disturbing. We love our children so much that when they're having a big emotion, it really triggers us and it sets off lots and lots of reactions inside us. So our first instinct often is to try and close that down. I've got to get rid of that emotion. I've got to stop them having that emotion. Whereas if we think of it as I have to help them just ride that emotion out. Emotions have a shape. They come, they build, they recede, they go away. If I can help my child just to learn to ride their emotions, they're going to be able to manage those themselves. So rather than thinking I need to get rid of those, it's just how can I support them to ride that emotion a little more quickly? Equally, we do too much for them because we're trying to avoid 
emotions. We try so hard to prevent our children from failing or from being left out or for anything difficult or uncomfortable happening to them. Because, you know, we think that's our job as parents is to protect our children. But I think modern parents have this tendency to try and do too much and go too far and don't understand that actually it's important that children have ups and downs, that they rise to challenges, that we accept their emotions because that helps them to accept their emotions. So really trying not to take away problems, but seeing our job as supporting children to solve problems for themselves, that that's our real role and that's how we really skill them up and set them up well for the future rather than trying to stop anything difficult ever happening to them. And often we do that because of the uncomfortable reaction it brings up in us and we have to learn to manage our own response to our children's emotions and be emotionally articulate and do that work ourselves in order to be with them in a calm way that helps them work through. Yeah, I've been on such a journey with this as well. And when Jesse first started having tantrums, it really triggered me. Like I would find it really difficult. And I've talked about it loads on the podcast, regular listeners know. So I've gone off and done loads of work about what it was triggering in me. And and now it's just such a different experience. When she's crying, as you say, I'm able to just label the feeling. I see if she has any extra words that she might put to the feeling, where it is in her body. And what is so amazing to me is that I think it's so easy to think that if we deny a feeling or try and push it down or say, shush, shush, there's nothing wrong, or try and distract them, that it will get rid of the feeling quicker. But in my experience, the opposite is absolutely true. The moment I give her space for the feeling, sometimes it's miraculous, like how quickly it just passes. And other parents are like, wow, how did you do that? And I'm like, honestly, I just let her feel it. And it seems to pass so quickly. I think sometimes non-intervention is the best way forward, is allowing children to have space without us denying their emotions and to go through that process. And the more they do it, the better they get at that emotional work themselves. So I think that's happening with Jessie now, actually, now that you've said that, because she's really good at managing her big disappointments or sadness or when she doesn't get something or when I hold a boundary. And I think that's maybe because the last couple of years I've just been coaching her through it. Children will always have negative reactions when we do things like holding boundaries. And that's one of the big challenges for parents, especially if you're a working parent. You've got all that guilt, all that worry about, am I failing my child anyway? And then we try and hold a boundary and then they have a big reaction because they're disappointed and they're not yet in control of their big feelings. And the temptation is to try and fix that problem. We can fix it by moving the boundary or by distracting them or giving them something else when actually all we need to do is say, I know you're disappointed. I can see that that's not the outcome you wanted. But I'm afraid that's the way it's going to be for these reasons. So, you know, I'll leave you with that and and allow you to cope with it. Obviously not in those words with a little one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I've noticed and a lot of people have been sharing with me on Instagram that during this time of self-isolation, a lot of children's feelings of all ages actually have got a lot bigger because they're managing their own frustrations. Like I know Jessie's really feeling it that she's missing her friends and she can't go out to the playground. And I'm wondering, have you noticed that in any of your clients firstly, that children's feelings have got a lot bigger during this self-isolation period? And for someone who's never been that kind of emotional coach, where do you suggest they could start with some of this stuff if they're in it right now. I think when you take children out of their routine, then often they are unsettled. Children like predictability because that helps to keep their world a little bit calmer. We often think that our children are in control because it can feel like they are trying to influence the world around them. But actually, children have very little control over their world. And suddenly that's been taken away even more. And when the predictability goes, then they can become very insecure and the emotions are more likely to come out. So the fact that change leads to big emotions 
emotions in children is almost inevitable. The big piece of advice is say what you see when it comes to emotions. You know, listen and acknowledge what that emotion is. Give it a name. So if you're not sure what they're feeling is, just try and name it. Say, well, it looks like you're feeling angry or it looks like you're feeling frustrated. Try and give it a word and put it out there so that you are helping them develop a vocabulary around their own feelings. And then once we name it and once we allow them to have a bit of space, as they're coming down the other side of the emotion, we can always just nudge them towards a coping strategy. You know, if they're feeling sad, well, it looks like you're feeling sad because you're missing your friends. And what could you do right now that might cheer you up for a few minutes? So suggesting that they think of something that will move them forward rather than us doing that emotional work for them. What could you do right now that just might cheer you up for a few seconds? And giving that work back to them, but nudging them towards it. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people will be experiencing a massive increase in sibling conflict. <laughs> yeah. Given that we're all stuck in the house together. I'm lucky. I don't have any between my four-month-old and my four-year-old yet. But lots and lots of people listening will do. What are some of the ways that we can effectively manage sibling conflict right now? That idea of setting children up to succeed is really, really important. So the big danger of trying to work from home whilst looking after children is that we're going to fall into the trap of ignoring them when they're doing the right things and paying them lots of attention when they're doing things we don't want them to do. So the classic trap is they're being really quiet, they're playing nicely, so we nip off to do some work. And then the minute it all goes wrong and they start shouting or screaming or one of them starts hitting the other one, that's when we go in and we give them our attention. And although it's negative attention, accidentally what we're doing is rewarding the behavior that we don't want with our attention. So we have to find a way to turn that around and set them up so that they are having the right behavior reinforced. So a good way to do that is to set some clear rules. Children are used to rules. They have them at nursery and school. So set a few rules that say, this is the way we behave. So we speak kindly, depending on the age of your children, exactly what the problem is. Set a positive rule. So if they are always shouting at each other, then your rule might be, we speak kindly or we speak nicely to each other. If physical aggression is the issue, then you might have a rule around being gentle, touching people gently, words that they understand at their age. You can put that up on the wall, you can reinforce it, and you look out for rule keeping. So all the time you keep going back when they're getting it right and it's like, oh, well done, lots of positive, warm, sincere praise. You can even divide the day up into really short chunks, you know, for every 15 minutes where they are gentle, then they get a tick, a sticker, some kind of reinforcement that adds up at the end of the day to something bigger. And then the next day, you can extend the goalposts a little bit. Maybe they have to go 20 minutes or a bit longer. And you lead them towards that becoming a new habit. So the big thing about sibling bickering is it's just often habitual behavior and we want to shift them into a different habit. And the best way to do that is motivation. Bring their mind to it again and again. If they get it wrong, we say to them, what was the rule? Do you remember the rule? Can you show me how to do that? So we're constantly leading them towards the right behavior. And when they do things wrong, that's when we do the low drama. They don't get a lot of attention for that. And we don't do the big intense reactions that might fuel that behavior to repeat. Okay. And that's linking into something else that I wanted to talk to you about, which is parental stress. Like I imagine that stress is quite high right now if you're trying to work at home and you've got two children who may be fighting and bickering and a husband or a partner, it might be really challenging. Mm. And I think all those things are really, they're not easy, but they're achievable, aren't they? When we feel quite calm and quite balanced. I know in my own parenting, all that goes out the window when I feel stressed. So what can we do to either reduce our own stress and also how can we access that calm place in ourselves when we feel stressed so that the stress doesn't get then transferred onto the children? I think 
all of the usual things around self-care. And you cannot tell working parents enough that self-care is important and that they need to be doing small, regular five-minute slots of self-care throughout the day to help us to manage those stress levels. The problem with stress is it puts us into that fight-or-flight mode and we become very overreactive with our children. We're much more likely to be shouting, to explode, to parent from that place. So one thing I really recommend, if your children are old enough to have a conversation, and this is from about three years old and upwards, you know, this is quite young children, sit them down when you're not stressed. So maybe on a Sunday night when things are calm and talk about what the rules are going to be for the next week, how it's going to go, invite them into the problem solving. And at that point, when you're calm, that's when you set the rules, you set out what the rewards, what the motivation might be. And that's when you think about consequences. What am I going to do? What's going to happen if you can't do that? And you do that in a joint collaborative way so that the children have some sense of ownership over that process and that you've thought about it in advance because that moment when the children are shouting and it's gone too far and it has got under your skin that is not the moment to be deciding how to react having a plan that you've put in place when you were calm and then walking in and implementing that plan is a much better place to be in. And the other thing is don't let it get to that point. If they're doing something that is either going to wind you up or it's dangerous, step in early before you get wound up and say, guys, this isn't okay. Please, can you do this differently? So don't wait. Don't think you have to be patient and patient and patient because the longer you try and be patient, the more likely it is you are just going to go bang. Just go early. Step in and say, no, this isn't okay. Come on, let's change this. Let's do this in a different way. So you're constantly trying to parent in the moment that you're calm rather than waiting for the moment when it's too late. Yeah, and I think that's so true and also something that I try and do and I talk about a lot is if we do explode forgiving ourselves and then repairing absolutely repairing is fine you know we don't have to be perfect parents we don't have to get it right all of the time we do need to model to our children that when you make a mistake this is how you repair with somebody and this is how you make good that emotional damage yeah and I think particularly now like you know I've been saying to Jessie Have you noticed that mummy and daddy look a bit more worried than normal? You know, because she's noticing all this stuff anyway, right? So I'm sort of helping her to understand why we might not be as calm or as, you know, the the normal routines have changed. And I think that's really working as well for us right now is just labelling things for her, like helping her understand what's going on, which I talked about in the podcast with Julia Samuel last week. I wanted to ask you about boredom. Because I'm hearing and seeing a lot of content about how to keep your kids entertained and keep boredom at bay. And to me, that feels like a lot of pressure. And I wonder, is it okay to let our kids get bored? I'm a little bit worried. I'm with you. I'm a little bit worried that homeschooling seems to have become the latest arena for competitive parenting. Um, (laughs) As if we don't have enough ways to feel like we're failing already. (laughs) And I do think we need to be realistic with this. Children being bored is actually good for them. Not only is it okay, it's good for them. So boredom is that little lull before imagination and creativity happens. It is essential that children manage boredom, that they go into a bored moment, that they think I've got nothing to do, that their brain does that work and they come up with something, an idea, some creativity. That is so good for them to learn. So what we don't want is for them constantly to be being fed. I'm bored. Mummy, you do something about it. I'm bored. It's your problem. I'm bored. Give me, you know, the tech or whatever it is and not learn to do that work for themselves. We have to be strong as parents. And when children are bored, just say, oh, well, I'm sure you can think of something to do and leave them to it. As long as they've got an interesting environment, they've got access to play activities, then they will come up with something. But take away the easy chewing gum responses, like, you know, there's always an iPad available or whatever it is, and leave them to it. I did a wonderful piece of work once with a group of mum bloggers who took tech away from their children for a week. 
And the results were fantastic. They said their children played better. Siblings got on better. Their games were more imaginative. Of course, they got a bit of a backlash to start with. The kids didn't like it for the first day or two, but they quickly got the hang of that. So no, we shouldn't be filling their every moment. Give them some interesting materials, whether it's, you know, some clothes from your wardrobe, the contents of the recycling box and say, well, I don't know what you're going to do about it, but I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with and then leave them to it. Don't direct, you know, you have to do it this way or this is the thing we're going to make. Give them the materials and allow them to play in that wonderful self-led free play that children do. But you're not suggesting we need to take the screens away, are you, right now? (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. I am suggesting that we use them strategically. What does that mean? For example, I mean, as a working parent, you know, if you've got to work from home and you know that there are certain things that you do as part of your work that do require you not to be interrupted, then those are the times where we think, okay, that's the time to be using the screens because they do tend to engage them very wholeheartedly. But don't blow screen time on other bits of the day when you don't need to be using them. So rather than allowing it to expand to fill the entire day, think about when am I using it during the day that coincides with a a moment in my day when I need to be doing something else. Inevitably, children will be using screens a lot more now. But screens for communication, you know, Skyping granny is a very, very different type of screen use than playing a game on a screen. So it's fine to use it for communication. That's inevitable and it's going to be good for them, especially older children for keeping in touch with friends. But don't think it has to be all day. There are plenty of other ways they can entertain themselves. Yeah, I think you're right. Like we talk about screen time, but actually that's far too a blunt at all because doing PE with Joe Wicks at 9am is fantastic. I know millions of people are doing it. And that's screen time, you know, it's on a screen, but it's very different, as you say, to sat there just mindlessly watching a show. And it's very different, again, to communicating with friends and family. So I love that point. It's about being far more nuanced about what screen time is and how we're using the screen, because it's such a blunt phrase, isn't it? Absolutely. And the big thing to think about with screen time with children, especially young children, is what are they not doing because they're on the screen? Now, if they're watching Joe Wicks and they're jumping up and down, they're meeting their developmental need for physical exercise. If they're sitting down and just playing on quite a mind numbing game, they're not really meeting any developmental needs. So to really think about it in the round a bit more holistically. Okay. Yeah, that's so important. Okay. We're coming to the end. Is there anything else that given your years of experience on this, that you would want parents in particular working parents out there right now to know or any words of comfort? (laughs) I do think there is possibly an opportunity here to have some time with our families and our children, which is a little bit less hurried. We are spending so much time in modern life hurrying and with high stress levels. Can we use this sort of enforced time with family to look for some moments where we might be able to enjoy a little bit more? Now, this will tell you how old I am, but I remember when I was a young child, we had the winter of discontent. And the winter of discontent was an awful economic time. And I'm sure my parents were very worried about it. The bins weren't being collected. The power was going off. But as a very young child, this is actually one of my most precious memories. Because when the power went out, my family used to sit in the front room. We had a log fire, an open fire, candles. And my mum sat still. My mum never used to sit still. She was always rushing around doing things. And we would talk and she would read and I would do classic things like toast marshmallows on the fire. And for me, it's a wonderful memory. So are there things that we can be doing with this time that create memories, whether it is building a den in the front room and sleeping in it overnight with our kids because we can't go on holiday or things that we can do that are precious without minimizing the stress and the worries of the situation. There are also opportunities to make some memories. So maybe thinking about that and approaching it in that way would be really helpful. Mm, That's such a good point. It's beautiful. And do you know, 
The same, like some of my favourite memories from childhood are times when my mum tells me now she felt she was failing. You know, she hadn't prepared dinner and so we'd have sandwiches on the floor. You know, I remember those so fondly that they were just so fun. Or when we got locked out and we had to sleep in the car once, you know, things like that. Just some of my most precious memories. Absolutely. Indoor picnic, you know, and get your five-year-old to make lunch. You know, that's what I say to people. They can make sandwiches. They can actually make lunch for you. Do something that makes them feel competent, that gives them a real boost in terms of self-esteem. They're making a contribution to the family and it's different. It's special. So don't think this is your problem to solve everything. Hand over to your children, collaborate, jointly problem solve with them and get them involved in coming up with solutions. And what you might find is that there's a real kind of boost to some of the family dynamics as a result of that. Yeah. And the final question that I asked everyone is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think I would like to help parents understand children a little bit better. So children are not an empty glass that we are trying to fill up with knowledge and skills and parenting. It's not as simple as that. Child development is a self-led process. Children will develop themselves given the right circumstances. So our real job as parents is to provide an interesting, a diverse, an empathetic environment, and children will develop themselves. So stop thinking that the onus is on us, that we are the be-all and end-all of growing our children and seeing that we are part of that process, but not all of it. And I think that would help parents to really take the pressure off and enjoy a little bit more those moments if we see it in that different way. Yes. As you were speaking, I was thinking, what a pressure reliever. Just take all that pressure off. We don't have to do it perfectly. And as you say, it's just about being there, isn't it, as we've been talking about. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I loved it. And I know it's going to be of help to so many out there. So thank you. Oh, it's welcome, Zoe. It's really nice talking to you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.